having someone come into this role today will make sure that the next 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years of Jacksonville's future is resilient and strong. This July, Mayor Lenny Curry announced his pick for Jacksonville's first ever chief resilience officer, Ann Kalanisi. Ann has worked at the highest levels of the federal government. She led the Coastal Resiliency Program for the city of New Orleans, served on the Coastal Advisory Team for the state of Louisiana's Coastal Master Plan, and worked on the Climate Preparedness and Resiliency Team at the White House Council on Environmental Quality. Ann is in a welcome addition to the city of Jacksonville, and I look forward to working with her. In her new role, Kalanisi is tasked with preparing the city of Jacksonville for the impacts of climate change. Welcome to the ADAPT Podcast. I'm Brendan Rivers, a reporter at WJCT News in Jacksonville, Florida. ADAPT is our digital magazine focused on how people in Northeast Florida are adapting to sea level rise and climate change. In this podcast, we'll hear from some of those people about what they've learned and what motivates them as our region grapples with big issues. But before we get into those big issues, when we're talking about a chief resilience officer, what does the word resilience even mean? So when I say resilience, I'm primarily speaking about city resilience, and I define that as the ability of city systems to adapt and thrive in the face of acute shocks like a hurricane or chronic stresses like sea level rise or urban heat. That can apply to things like pandemics as well, but for now, CRO and Kalanisi is focused on the climate. That's kind of the baseline for our resilience work here in the city of Jacksonville, simply due to our risk profile. That makes sense. Um, and what does it mean for a city or a community like Jacksonville to become more resilient? What does that process look like? Well, it looks at studying studying what changes are, are, are coming down the line. So for a city like Jacksonville along the coast, that means looking at sea level rise, uh, changes in storm patterns and intensity of storm events. And then layering that on top of the city's built development, communities, the economy, and trying to find solutions that really work for the communities here in Jacksonville. So what is a chief resiliency officer? What what do you do? It's a great question. So a chief resilience officer, uh, you know, is here to design resilient solutions for a city like Jacksonville. And that primarily looks at breaking down silos within city government, working with outside stakeholders, kind of the independent authorities in and around Jacksonville that make decisions, whether that's JEA or JTA, um, and making sure that everyone's kind of pushing in the same direction and, and thinking long term. Most city departments are constrained with the here and now. The planning department is permitting things. The public works department is building things here and now. And a chief resilience officer has, you know, the ability and in my perspective, the luxury to think long term and to really look at what's what's the latest in science and data and where do we need to get and then what interventions need to be put in place to allow city departments to to move in that direction together. And you are the city's first chief resiliency officer. How important do you think it is for this community to to have someone in that position? 
you know, the best the best day to start working on resilience is today. So I think that the fact that the city of Jacksonville has now recognized that climate change um, is posing a risk and, and is receptive to having someone come in and think strategically about about the city's long term planning for climate. That's huge. And, and I think having someone come into this role today will make sure that the next five, 10, 20, 30, 50 years of Jacksonville's future is resilient and strong. One concept that's critical to Kalanisi's work philosophy is this idea of resilience dividends. And it basically just applies to how do you get multiple benefits out of any any resilience initiative you're taking under place. So if you're tackling flooding, how does that have human health benefits? How does that perhaps um, reduce urban heat? How is that providing an opportunity for, for workforce or a new economy to emerge? And so I think trying to achieve as many benefits as possible through this resilience dividend is uh, really fundamental to how I view this work. Some of the best examples of solutions that provide resilience dividends, Kalanisi says, are green infrastructure like trees and rain gardens and living shorelines like wetlands and oyster reefs. The main concept behind green infrastructure or a living shoreline is how do you work with nature instead of against it? So recognizing that the future of Jacksonville is going to have more frequent storm events. We're going to have wetter storms, stronger storms. How do we find more places for that water to go? How do we work within the water? So green infrastructure within kind of an urban context can provide spaces for stormwater to be captured temporarily while a storm event's happening. And then after the storm event's passed, it can slowly infiltrate into our drainage system. And that allows our drainage system the time to catch up. um, And that reduces the amount of street flooding that you see. With a living shoreline, it's the same concept. How do you buffer storm surge? How do you have a how do you slow the wave action and have a place for that water to go um, when the storm's hitting? And that can take some of the pressure off of bulkheads and other gray infrastructure features that are more common in, in city public works. While Kalanisi stresses the importance of using green infrastructure and living shorelines, she says gray infrastructure, things like seawalls and drainage systems, are useful too. My philosophy is that you need both and that the best approach, the most resilient approach is a kind of multiple lines of defense. So if you're, you know, have a storm approaching, if you have a wetland in front of your bulkhead, that's going to really reduce the chance of that bulkhead overtopping and having any sort of property damage. So I really see gray infrastructure and green infrastructure as working in concert together. In a minute, we'll hear a bit about Kalanisi's background. Then we'll talk about some of the biggest climate-related threats facing Jacksonville and how Kalanisi plans to address them. You're listening to the ADAPT Podcast. I'm Brendan Rivers, and we're speaking with Ann Kalanisi, Jacksonville's first-ever Chief Resilience Officer. To read and share a written Q&A version of this conversation, head over to adaptflorida.org. There, you can also sign up for the monthly ADAPT newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get new in-depth reporting on climate change and details on upcoming climate-related events sent right to your inbox every month. ADAPT is a production of WJCT Public Media and is only possible thanks to support from readers and listeners just like you with additional support from the 2040 Foundation and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations.
Jacksonville's new chief resilience officer, Ann Kalanisi, went to the University of Richmond, where she studied leadership and the environment. A study abroad program took her to three countries that are extremely vulnerable to climate change, Vietnam, Morocco, and Bolivia. And I think that's where it really clicked for me that the planet's going to be fine. It's people that are at risk. And so what climate change really means is, you know, how are, how are people's livelihoods going to be affected? How is their personal and physical security going to be impacted? And so that's where I really got interested in this idea of climate adaptation and putting in interventions that can buffer some of the impacts of climate change from reaching people. If you're talking to farmers in the Atlas Mountains, they're having to figure out how to change, adapt their crops this growing season, next growing season. They're already seeing climate change in a real way. Being in Bolivia, there are parts of Bolivia that have already had to migrate due to water shortages. Um, and so I think kind of that catalyzed, you know, my understanding of, of the realities of climate change and the impacts that people would feel in real time. And so that was really a huge motivation for me to to guide my work here in the U.S. to make sure that we never reach the point where we're seeing entire regions have to, to a- abandon, you know, their homes and their economies and just start over. After graduating in 2015, she saw that the Barack Obama White House was putting together a team to work on climate preparedness and resilience. I'd never heard of a federal federal team working on that before. This was brand new. And so I applied for an internship and got hired very early on and got to stay through the last two years of the Obama administration, which is really when climate kind of took shape and, and when we got a lot of work done. So It was a really exciting time to be there. In 2017, she left D.C. for New Orleans, where she served as Coastal Resilience Manager. When I joined the city of New Orleans, they were at the beginning of their resilience work. They were the first city in the country to hire a chief resilience officer, the first city in the country to release a comprehensive resilience strategy. So everything we were doing at the city was brand new. But there was a really talented team of people who had been through Katrina, who were expert urban planners and were really savvy in the way that they approached the city's resilience. So it was a really great place to kind of learn on the ground uh, um, and get up to speed on kind of all of the resilience solutions that are possible. I'd also say that when I joined the city of New Orleans, there wasn't there wasn't a coastal resilience program. I was really brought on to build that out. And it was the first time I think that a U.S. city had acknowledged it needed to be involved in the decision making that was happening outside its boundaries. So there were some sections of New Orleans that had wetlands that I was you know, directly trying to to protect. But it was also a lot of working with uh, neighboring municipalities, working with the state of Louisiana on their coastal master plan um, and trying to build up all of southeast Louisiana and make sure the whole region um, was resilient. And I think people in New Orleans recognized that the city couldn't function as an island. It needed to be connected to its region um, and that the entire region needed to be strong. So it was you know, a really interesting landscape, kind of the right time for resilience work. People were, were interested, were ready for it. Um, and then also kind of getting to do some completely new resilience that just had never been done before. And I'm curious because it sounds like you were really kind of on the the ground floor of when New Orleans was was starting to work and think about this. Was there pushback to what you were doing and and the role you had? Yes. I would say that 
a lot of it came down to confusion over the word resilience. And that's why it's important every time I'm talking to say, I'm talking about city resilience. This is how do we change the way the city does business to make sure it has continuity if there's a storm event, to make sure that the city is taking the burden off of individual residents to be resilient themselves. And so a lot of New Orleanians had kind of this pushback of don't call me resilient. They'd been called resilient after Katrina and after BP. And in their mind, you know, their city had failed them numerous times. Their governments had failed them. And so city resilience is really this idea that that if we can take on the burden of resilience, if we can make sure that the way we're designing our city is strong enough to face impacts of climate change and flexible enough to adapt as, as some of those changes reveal themselves, then that can make sure that our residents don't have to be resilient, that they can you know, proceed with their lives regardless of, of what comes up. Kalanisi left New Orleans to get her master's degree in public affairs from the University of Michigan. Mayor Lenny Curry picked her to lead Jacksonville's resiliency efforts just two months after she graduated. So Mayor Lenny Curry doesn't talk publicly about these issues very often. Uh, So I'm just wondering if you can give us any insight into his thinking on climate change and sea level rise. What, What have your interactions with him been like on this issue? The first thing I'll say is, you know, when I, the first time I met with him, he said, I'm not a climate denier. This is happening. And I just want to make sure Jacksonville is prepared. So from where I sit, that's a really great starting point. The idea that, you know, we could be in the South led by a Republican mayor who's very realistic about our risk profile and very eager to make sure that Jacksonville residents are protected and are safe and that the resilient strategy is rolled out in a way that, you know, everyone really truly benefits, that this isn't something that is simply, you know, focused on the environment, but is also focused on our economy and our communities and making sure that all of those things are benefiting, despite the fact that we're facing kind of this unknown and and elevated risk of climate change. What do you think will be the biggest challenge or obstacle for you personally in this role? I mean, honestly, I think the the biggest obstacle is the fact that I'm not from Jacksonville. I'm not of Jacksonville. And so, you know, resilience to be done well, it's that's a land use kind of planning role. And so to learn Jacksonville's history, to have a really clear picture of where Jacksonville is now is going to be critical for me in guiding where Jacksonville is going to go in the future. So I think right now I'm actually in kind of the steepest part of my learning curve um, and probably the hardest part of this role. But once we get a resilient strategy developed, um, once there's, you know, input from stakeholders, from city departments, once we have kind of a plan, I think executing that should, you know, be pretty clear. What do you think the biggest threats are that are facing Jacksonville and Northeast Florida at large? I think the the obvious threat is is water, and that can come as storm surge during a hurricane. That can be residential flooding during these wet summer rainstorms that are happening and are just hovering over a neighborhood and dropping inches of water in a short span of time. I think that can be tidal flooding. I would also say that urban heat is going to become a a really big challenge and big threat. And I think the, the challenge with urban heat is that you can't see it. But you can feel it. And we know that there are so many health consequences um, and really societal consequences of not addressing heat. Um, and of course, our most vulnerable residents um, are, are at risk if we, if we don't get on top of urban heat issues. Cities tend to be hotter than surrounding areas due to what's known as the urban heat island effect, which is caused by heat absorbing surfaces like roads and buildings. 
Studies have shown that this disproportionately affects minority and low-income communities, which usually have less shade-providing trees than whiter, wealthier neighborhoods. Research shows that summertime temperatures in Jacksonville neighborhoods that were discriminated against under redlining policies 100 years ago are almost 10 degrees hotter than tree-heavy historic neighborhoods like Avondale and San Marco. The good news, Colonisi says, is that some of the proven solutions to urban heat also help to reduce flooding, a resilience dividend, as she would say. So more green space will absorb more flood water, but it also those plants act as a cooling, they have a cooling effect on neighborhoods. So the more we can get rid of concrete and put in permeable surfaces like plants or you know semi-permeable paving, that benefits our flood risk reduction and it also will have an impact on cooling our city. Um, and that can add, have numerous benefits for residents, both you know financially and also their health. So we've seen, not just in Jacksonville, but all over the world, every time there's one of these climate change-fueled disasters, the impacts disproportionately affect people of color and people in low-income communities. What, what can we do in Jacksonville to, to help rectify that? What can we do to help these communities be more resilient to the effects to begin with and help them recover faster when disaster strikes? I fundamentally don't believe that you can be a resilient city if you're not an equitable city. And I don't believe you can achieve equity if you're not also factoring in resilience. So the reality is that, yes, communities of color historically have been more impacted by these these disasters. And that just means that we need to be really thoughtful in the way that we roll, we roll out resilience interventions, whether that's stormwater protection, green infrastructure features. And there's really a lot of opportunity that comes with that, too. How do we make sure that the the businesses that are getting these these green infrastructure contracts are based here in Jacksonville and are hiring locally? And so those will all be factors in kind of how we approach the city's resilience program. We really want to see this as something that not only solves our environmental challenges, but that provides opportunity for our residents. And if it can also, um, you know, help rectify historic inequities, that's that's huge. And that's that's something that we're that I'm personally very interested in. Uh, and you said earlier that and I think this is what everybody expected is that the focus is going to be on making Jackson more Jacksonville more resilient and, and preparing more for the impacts of climate change. But do you think it's important for the city to reduce its carbon footprint? Or do you think that's something that needs to come from the federal level or from the state level? I think the you know the federal government really should be should be guiding that and um, I think our resilience work really needs to focus on things that have a tangible impact on residents. So addressing our risk and addressing the impacts of climate change is kind of the natural entry point. That doesn't mean you know that that door is closed in the future. But I think if the federal government isn't really guiding that work, it doesn't make much sense for for any individual city to to bend over backwards to implement some of those those climate mitigation measures. And really, for for the purpose of Jacksonville, you know, being a coastal city, being in Florida, that that's high risk. And and I think all resources really should be on making sure that the city's prepared for climate change, because at the end of the day, whether we cut emissions today, tomorrow, next week, we're going to be seeing the impacts of climate change for the next 40 to 50 years. Um, and, and so it's more important that from kind of a local government perspective that we're putting in interventions that can really protect Jacksonville residents. So people are very excited about your arrival. People have been talking about Jacksonville getting a chief resiliency officer for a long time. So 
I'm just curious if you're worried at all that there is too much expectation or too much hope that's going to be placed on your shoulders. Uh, do, you, do you think you're going to be able to live up to everybody's expectations <laughs> or do you think we need to expect sort of slow momentum on this? It's a great question. I would I'd never want to say that you should have, you know, or having too much hope. I think, you know, hope is a good thing. And I think keeping this work aspirational pushes us to come up with aspirational solutions. I think that's a good thing. I will say there, I, I getting the sense that there are some people in the community who think, you know, now that a chief resilience officer has been hired, Jacksonville's never going to get hit with a hurricane or we're never going to have a, a drop of flooding. The, the fact of the matter is that this will take time. This is, you know, this is a big challenge that we're undertaking. So I, I think people should kind of expect this work to develop um, very carefully. But but the goal is to to do it right and to make sure that any solution we're putting in, you know, in the next two to five years has really legs for the next 10 to 20. So um, that just requires us to make sure that that we're we're starting off in the right foot. And I think another good way to, to help address sort of this this expectation that people have is maybe tell us a bit about where you think this process of becoming more resilient is going to start. Yeah, I really believe that this work needs to be developed based on the best science and data and models. And we have some of that, but there's certainly more more studying that I want to make sure is done before we're making some of these these larger scale decisions. So the city's public works department is currently uh, looking at a vulnerability assessment for six of the most high-impacted sub-basins in the city. Um, but we're going to be expanding that in the in the coming year and hopefully addressing all sub-basins in the city. So we have a really good baseline picture of what assets in Jacksonville are at risk. And then as we come up with resilience projects, we can target kind of critical clusters of assets, clusters where there is a lot there's a lot of residential activity where there are there are kind of communities that are a vulnerable position. So I do believe that, you know, science and data is the foundation for this work and it will help us make the right decisions as we're prioritizing things in the future. How important to you is it to engage with the community, to engage with just the general public? I, th- I think it's critical that that Jacksonville residents feel like they have input into the city's resilience planning, that they understand their risk, but they also feel empowered to participate in some of this problem solving. So, you know, when you're when right now I'm kind of gathering baseline data and that's a lot of science and that's a lot of engineering. But then what do we do about it? That next step in the process really does need to be, you know, supported by the community and kind of co-created with residents. That was Ann Kalanisi, Jacksonville's first-ever Chief Resilience Officer. If you want to be the first to get new, in-depth reporting on climate change in Northeast Florida and to learn about upcoming ADAPT events, be sure to subscribe to the monthly ADAPT newsletter. Just head on over to adaptflorida.org and click sign up. I'm Brendan Rivers, and I produced this episode. Jessica Palumbo is our editor. The theme music for this show was composed and performed by Davin Llewellyn and Keith Phelps from The Conglomerate. ADAPT comes from WJCT Public Media, with support from the 2040 Foundation, the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations, and from listeners like you. More on how Northeast Floridians are adapting to sea level rise and climate change is at adaptflorida.org. This is the ADAPT Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.